Okay, I'm not going to talk about the election. I think you've all heard enough about the election uh, the last few months, really. So um, we, we, we did have a special service. I would encourage you to listen to it on, from Wednesday night where we did address the issue of the election here. And I did a special, uh, kind of a special prayer service Wednesday night. <clears throat> Facebook actually blocked our uh, post, I guess, because I mentioned the election. So uh, they would not allow us to boost our message on Facebook. We were censored, basically, on Facebook. So you may want to listen to the message on Wednesday night. If it was good enough for Facebook to banish us from, you know, not boosting that message, then maybe you'll want to hear it. So... But again, the idea is that we want, to, we want to keep our eyes on Jesus. We want to trust in the Lord and not look to man, because man will always disappoint us. Uh, but God will never disappoint us. Our hope is in him for us, for our future, and for our country. Okay, we're in Isaiah chapter 14, if you'd like to open up there. Isaiah chapter 14. And we will be going through this on Wednesday night. We meet here Wednesday nights at 6.30. And we're going uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the book of Isaiah on Wednesday nights. It's called an expository study. And so we'll be in Isaiah 14 this Wednesday where we're, we'll hit every verse, you know, uh, all 32 verses here um, on Wednesday night. But tonight, this morning, we just want to read just a few verses. Isaiah 14. Verses 12 through 14. And I've entitled this message, <clears throat> Thy will be done. Thy will be done. Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you were cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. So our message is entitled, Thy will be done. Lucifer's message is, my will be done. I will have what I want is what Lucifer says in contrast to what Jesus teaches us as Jesus' disciples and followers. We are no longer to be living for our own will. We're to be living for his will because he bought us with a price. He purchased us with his blood. So this is the uh, really the introduction to the character of Lucifer. This is the only time that the name Lucifer is mentioned in the Bible. And the name Lucifer was likely the name of Satan before he fell. So when Satan was still a good angel, his name was Lucifer. Lucifer is actually a beautiful name. It means shining one or day star. Uh, and so he was, according to uh, Isaiah 14 and then also in uh, Ezekiel and chapter 28, we're given some description about who he was before he fell. He was called the anointed cherub who covers. And so he was one of the top orders of angels. He uh, was equal uh, likely to Michael the archangel or perhaps Gabriel the archangel in, in authority and power in heaven uh, before he fell. 
he also was the worship leader, most likely. He was the worship leader of heaven before he fell. And what happened was is he became jealous of God. He decided that he didn't want God to receive the worship. He thought that he should also receive the worship. He wanted to be worshiped as God. And so here we're told how he, how he fell, how he was cut down, how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you were cut down to the ground, you who have weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, and then here's his five I wills to challenge God. He says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. The stars of God would be speaking of the other angels in the angelic realm. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will be like the most high. And so this was Lucifer's sin, his pride in really coveting the throne of God, wanting to be God and wanting to be worshipped as God. And then uh, we know that he uh, was cast down and he became a fallen angel. Now he is the devil and he is Satan. Um, turn with me to Matthew in chapter 6 where we see Jesus teaching us how to pray in contrast to what Lucifer tells his followers you know, Satanism tells you, do whatever you want. That is, that is the first rule of Satanism. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. And it, it, Satanism has really permeated our culture. That is, the, that is the message that comes from the movies, the media, the music industry. Uh, everybody is, is being told to just do whatever you want and then you'll be happy. Well, that is, that is just pure Satanism at its roots. Uh, God tells us not to just do whatever we want. Uh, he says that we are to do what he wants us to do. Not my will, but thy will be done, is what Jesus taught us. So we read in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, as Jesus is giving his disciples the model prayer or the disciples' prayer. It wasn't the Lord's prayer because Jesus wouldn't have prayed this prayer uh, because Jesus didn't have to ask for any sins to be forgiven. So uh, when he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, uh, this is not a prayer that Jesus would have prayed because Jesus had no sin. This is uh, a prayer that he gave us to pray, his disciples. Uh, so it's the disciples' prayer rather than the Lord's prayer. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9 in this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And so Jesus teaches us, his disciples, to pray this prayer. This is our prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That should be the cry of our hearts, that we would want God's will to be done on the earth as his will is being done in heaven. How do we accomplish this? How do we bring about God's will on the earth? Well, 
by obeying God's word. God's will is, re- uh, is revealed to us through his word. If you want to know God's will, learn God's word, and then do what you learn from the word of God, and then you are now doing the will of God, and God's will is being done on the earth through you as his will is being done in heaven. Now, Jesus could tell us this. Jesus could tell us to pray this because Jesus always modeled this for us. He always did the will of his Father. He did not come to do his own will. He came to yield and to do the will of his Father who sent him. We read in Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 5, Therefore, when he came into the world... He said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. So this is Jesus speaking prophetically. This is about Jesus and what Jesus would say. Uh, I have come, in the volume of the book it's written of me, I have come to do your will, O God. That's the purpose and the reason that Jesus came, was to perfectly fulfill the law, perfectly obey God like no one else had ever done before or would ever do after. Then he would die as the sacrifice for the sins of the world because he had no sins of his own. Verse 80 says, previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Verse 9, then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And so Jesus' heart His message when he came, what he always did was the will of his father. He always did the will of his father. He came in perfect obedience. He said, my meat or my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete it or to finish it. That's what Jesus' sole purpose was for his life and ministry was to obey the will of God and to perfectly fulfill the law of God, which he did do. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus was there agonizing in the garden, in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 36, Jesus was praying in Gethsemane with his disciples when he was about to be uh, betrayed and by Judas Iscariot and taken and beaten and tortured and crucified. We read this, Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. Matthew 26, 37. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther, and he fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, 
What, could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. So you have Lucifer who says, I will ascend above the the stars of heaven. I will be like the Most High. I will, I will, I will, Satan says. Jesus says, thy will be done. Thy will be done. Whatever thy will is, that is what I want. Even if this cup cannot pass away, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And so that is our example. Jesus is our example. This is demonstrating yielding to the will of God for the child of God. This is demonstrating submission to God's will. This is his desire for you and I as well. We are Christ's people. We're his followers. Uh, We have his name. We're called Christian or Christ one. And as his people, we should also be those who want the will of God in our lives, not our own will, but God's will to be done through us. That is actually what really exemplifies Christianity, is people who do the will of God, people who love God with all of their heart, all of their soul, all of their mind, and all of their strength, and who seek to love their neighbor as they love themselves. Jesus says, if you do these two things, you fulfill the law. And so what really proves our faith is when we, like Jesus, go and do the will of God. So people could see us living a yielded, surrendered life to God say, well, this is what Christianity is. It's someone who's no longer living for themselves, but living for God, no longer seeking to do his own thing or her own thing, but to find out what the will of God is through the word of God and then to live that life so that we could be a role model to this fallen world as to who God really is. The Bible tells us that obedience is better than sacrifice and that faith without works is dead. James said, let us not be hearers only, but also doers of the word, that we would not be deceiving ourselves, letting the word go in one ear and out the other. We shouldn't just be those who hear the word of God, but we should be those who seek to do the the will of God and the word of God. In John chapter 14, Jesus was telling his disciples this in verse 19. Jesus says, a little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you. Verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. But he who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So this is very uh, critical information. Jesus is telling his disciples in the upper room before he was going to go and be crucified. And he he tells them, this is what uh, 
is expected from you. If you love me, if you say you love me, you're going to seek to obey me. He would, he would say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things that I say? You don't obey me. You call me Lord, yet I'm not your Lord because you don't obey me. If I was your Lord, you would obey the things that I say. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I say? Jesus said, there'll be many in that day who will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not do these things in your name? You'll say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. So if we want to be those who are doing the will of God on this earth, in this world, with our lives, we must keep his word. He says, he who loves me will keep my word. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Not my will, but thy will be done. Again, Jesus summed it all up with two basic commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. If you love God, you're not going to want to do things to sin against God and to hurt God. As a matter of fact, even people who abuse their bodies with drugs or alcohol or pornography or whatever addictions that they have, they think, well, I'm not hurting anyone else. I'm just hurting myself. Not true. You're hurting all the people around you who love you uh, if you're an addict. But beyond that, uh, you're, you're hurting the very temple of God. If you're a Christian, you're a child of God. His uh, spirit dwells within you. Your body is now his home. Your body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. So you have a responsibility to how you even treat your body. Uh, even if you're not harming anyone else, if you're harming yourself, it's a sin against God because God now owns you. You belong to him. He purchased you with his blood. Satan is the one who is uh, self-determined to do what he wants. Uh, he uses the free will that God gave him to choose to disobey God. And that was the risk that God ran when God gave man free will. And apparently the angels also had free will uh, at one point to choose to obey or disobey. Some choose to obey Satan and fell with Satan. One third of the angels fell. They had a free will. Self-determination. God made us with self-determination. We have a choice. We have a, a, a will that we could exercise. It doesn't mean that everything I'm going to do is going to be uh, what God wants me to do. I have a choice and so do you. We're self-determined beings. We have free will. And Satan is always trying to get us to uh, do our own thing and think that if we just had whatever we wanted, then we'd be happy. And it's just such a lie. You could have everything in the world and you could still be miserable in this life. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, he came as a crafty serpent and he deceived Eve. Eve disobeyed God's word, which resulted in death. God told them, Adam and Eve, the day that you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. So they disobeyed. Eve took, she gave to Adam. Adam took and ate, and the result was death. They disobeyed the will of God, the word of God, and as a result, they brought death upon themselves and upon mankind. So Satan is always trying to get us to think that we could disobey God and somehow it's going to be okay or that God's holding back on us and he doesn't want us to really have fun or really, you know, there's secret knowledge out there, but you have to go into the occult and you have to go through, you know, all of these covens of witchcraft and all these deep, dark, occultic magic secrets are forbidden by God and Satan says God's just trying to keep something good from you he's trying to keep you from knowing all that he knows but it's a lie from the pit of hell God protects us he tells us what we need to know in his word and he protects us from all of the wickedness and the darkness that's out there in this world 
God wants the best for us. Satan wants to take us to hell. That's where he's going. Satan was a usurper. He basically took the domination from man of the world away from man. God created the world. He gave it to man. Man was given stewardship over the world. Man disobeyed God, obeyed the voice of the serpent, and in doing so, transferred authority to the serpent to where Satan became the God of this world, little g. Satan became the ruler of this world. This is what Jesus tells us in the New Testament. Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. Paul calls Satan the God of this world who has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. And we are born into this rebellion, really. We're born as friends to the world, which means that we're born as enemies to God. And that's why we need to be saved and we need to be made uh, uh, at peace with God and to have peace with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. In 1 John and chapter 2, we read this. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, about this world and, and what the world has to offer. John says, Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. There it is again. Doing the will of God. Not my will, but thy will be done. And that's the best thing for me, is for God's will to be manifest in my life. There's no better joy, no greater plan than to be surrendered to the will of God and have God uh, use me because I'm in his will. There's nothing greater. And so we need to understand the love of, of this world is, is, uh, is a problem. All that is in this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And so Satan comes and he tempts us to sin against God by using the world and, and the flesh. Uh, our flesh is, is uh, sinful to the core. This world is fallen. And then Satan is there. The world, the flesh, and the devil is there to try and tempt us. You know, that's why Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, from the evil one. Um, because our flesh is so easily tempted. Our flesh is so easily uh, compromised. It's, our flesh is so powerful. The lusts of our flesh are so powerful. That's why we have to continue to mortify our flesh, to crucify our flesh daily. We have to die to self, to the self-will. Satan says, oh, do whatever you want and you'll be happy. It's a life in the pit of hell. You do whatever you want, and if everybody's doing whatever they want, it's going to be hell on earth. Everybody's going to be killing each other to take what everybody else has. If you're, you know, look at the lions and the animal kingdom. If we're going to be no better than animals, it's going to be might is right and the strongest survive, and whoever has the biggest guns and the most weapons is going to have all the power. And uh, this is not um, the, the way of God. Jesus says if you seek to find your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. Jesus conquered the world. He conquered the flesh and he conquered the devil. And so through Jesus, we have victory over the world, the flesh and the devil. In Psalm chapter 32, David, the psalmist, uh, wrote this beautiful prayer 
of repentance and forgiveness after he was caught in sin with uh, Bathsheba. Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. What a beautiful prayer from a heart that's crying out to God in repentance and in uh, receiving God's grace and his forgiveness. <clears throat> now the Lord answers him in verse 8 and says this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with a bit and a bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Interesting that the Lord, after David has repented and David has been restored and David uh, has been forgiven, um, this is what the Lord tells David. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like a horse or like a mule, which has no understanding. It must be harnessed with a bit and bridle, else they will not come to you. In other words, God is saying, don't make me treat you like a dumb animal, a rebellious, stubborn mule or stubborn horse, where I have to hurt you to get you to where I want you to be. You know, you, you put the bit in the mouth of the horse and it hurts him. He doesn't want to be pulled in that way. He doesn't want to, you know, be directed with that bit in the mouth because it's painful for him. But because the animal is stubborn, God is saying, you know, um, don't have much of a choice. We can either do this the easy way or the hard way. If, if you want to just obey the Lord, it's going to be the easy way and the best way. God says, I'll instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. The idea, again, with the horse is that an owner having such a good relationship with his animal that the owner would just look and the horse would go where the owner is telling him to go just by a look. The mule or the, or the horse would be so in tune with the owner that he would do whatever the owner was looking for or looking at. And he's saying, that's how you should be. I will instruct you. I'll teach you. I will guide you with my eye. Don't be like a dumb, stubborn animal that I have to put a bit in your mouth and drag you to myself to bring you to me, else they will not come near you. And so again, if we sin against God, we sin against ourselves, and sin brings its own punishment. Whether it's drunk driving, whether it's drug addiction, whether it's somebody who cheats on their spouse and has an affair. I mean, you could go all down the line. Somebody decides that they want to, you know, uh, 
go to a party and, and, and drive home drunk and they kill somebody. I mean, sin comes with its own price that we pay, and God is trying to protect us from that. He wants better for us. He wants the best for us. And the best for us is to abide in his word and to do his will. In Psalm chapter 34, in verse 4, again, a psalm of David, David says this, I sought the Lord and he heard me and he delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and he saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. This is a man who knew the Lord. David knew the Lord. He, he could say, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's experienced the goodness of God. He's experienced the grace of God in his life, the providence of God in his life, the forgiveness of God in his life. And so David cries out to you and to me, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There's no want to those who fear him. So again, the idea is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If I fear God, I'm going to want to know what his word says. If I know what his word says, I'm going to want to obey what I know his word says because his will is contained in his word. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God or the word of Christ. If you have very little faith and your faith is falling apart because perhaps the candidate you voted for lost the election last week, uh, your faith needs to be not in man or the word of man, but in the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so if you want your faith to increase, you need to spend more time in the Bible. The Bible feeds your soul. You want your soul to be strong. If you're not feeding your soul, your soul is going to be weak and anemic. And if all you're doing is feeding your flesh, news media and newspapers and television and just, you know, political conversations on Facebook or whatever, you're just feeding your flesh, feeding your flesh, feeding your flesh, your flesh is going to go stronger and you're going to just become a very fleshly, carnal Christian, which is really an oxymoron. It's a contradiction. If you're a Christian, you shouldn't be carnal. You should be spiritual. 
But again, the choice is ours to obey or to disobey, to surrender to God or to do my own thing. It says here that he redeems the soul of his servants in verse 22 of Psalm 34. He redeemed us. He, he purchased us. He bought us, uh, as it were, from the uh, offering block. You know, he, he, he took us and he purchased us as his own. In 1 Peter in chapter 1, Peter says this about the precious blood of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here on earth in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so Jesus purchased us back to God. Man was sold into sin by rebellion in the Garden of Eden. We're all born into sin. And yet God came and purchased us back to himself with his life, with his blood. Now it's interesting that there is this scene in heaven in Revelation chapter 5 that really kind of describes the heavenly scene of Jesus taking what he purchased, taking what rightfully belongs to him because he purchased us with his blood. In Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1, we read this, this heavenly scene. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll or a book written inside and on the back and sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So I wept much, John says, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So you have this amazing scene in heaven where John, the beloved apostle, sees God, the Father, seated on his throne. In his right hand, he has a scroll. And this scroll is significant. This scroll is symbolic. Uh, the angel proclaimed, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And it says, no one on earth or in heaven or under the earth was worthy. No one was found worthy to take the scroll from the hand, who, the hand of him who sat on the throne, to take the scroll and to open 
the seals. And then one of the elders said to John, it says he was weeping. Somehow John understood that this is the salvation for planet earth. This scroll represents salvation and nobody is worthy to, to take the scroll and open the seals. He weeps, he says, bitterly. And then verse 5, one of the elders said to him, do not weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And then it talks about the lamb, uh, pictured with seven horns and seven eyes. Seven is the number of perfection, the number of completion, the number of fulfillment. Seven uh, spirits of God, that's what it's speaking about, the fulfillment or the completion of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, a complete filling of the Spirit in Jesus. Seven being the number of completion or totality. And so Jesus is the only one, the lamb who had been slain, who was worthy to come and to take the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, what is this scroll? Verse 8 says, When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the four, 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth." Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing, and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever. So this incredible scene taking place in heaven, significant, so significant, uh, that John understands that whatever uh, this scroll is, it, it is for the salvation of planet Earth. It's that significant. We know that as the Lamb begins to open the scroll and break the seals in heaven, then the judgments of God begin to pour out down upon the Earth. As the scrolls are broken, as He's opening the seal of seven seals, Judgments are poured out on the earth as Jesus is preparing to come and to take possession of that which he purchased with his blood. I believe that the scroll is the title deed to planet earth and that Jesus purchased back the sovereignty of the earth with his life, with his blood on the cross of Calvary. Again, God made the earth. He gave it to man. Man handed it over to Satan by disobeying the voice of God and obeying the voice of the serpent. So Jesus came and he purchased the earth with his own blood. There's a scene in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, that has an Old Testament uh, um, you know, sort of example of this same scene that John saw in the book of Revelation. In Daniel 7 and verse 9, Daniel said, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. 
His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, and thousands upon thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, the books were open. So it's the same scene that John saw in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 5. Daniel saw this scene in Daniel chapter 7. And we know it's the same number, the thousands of, of thousands, 10,000 times 10,000, or hundreds of millions of angels there before the throne of God. There was a, like a court that was seated. There were books that were open. And then skipping to verse 13 of Daniel 7, the vision continues. He says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. And of course, this is speaking of Jesus in the Old Testament, the Son of Man who came before the Ancient of Days to the throne, the very throne of God. And to him was given what? A kingdom, dominion, rule, glory, a kingdom, peoples, nations, languages, everyone serving him, it says. God's will will be done on earth as it is being done in heaven, as Jesus has taught us to pray for the last 2,000 years. At this time, Everyone on the earth will be doing the will of God because if they won't, they won't be here uh, in, in the kingdom of, of Jesus Christ when he rules and reigns for a thousand years. But again, that scroll is, is significant. The scroll is how Jesus receives his kingdom. Now turn to Matthew chapter 13 and We're just about done here. But Matthew chapter 13 has a very interesting series of parables that I believe kind of confirms what we've been talking about, that the scroll is the title deed for planet Earth. In Matthew chapter 13, as Jesus is giving the parables of the kingdom, he says this in verse 24. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. And while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and to gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat, wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And so Jesus tells him a parable, a kingdom uh, parable here. A man who sowed good seed in the field. An enemy came while the man slept, sowed tares or poisonous weeds among the wheat. 
Uh, the servants asked, you know, did we not plant good seed in this field? Where did the tares come from? And he says, an enemy uh, has done this. And so uh, this is a parable. Jesus will explain to his disciples what the parable means. He says in verse 37, explaining what the parable means to his disciples. He who sows the seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age the Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus defines the terms and the characters of the parable for us, so we don't have to guess. He says that he who sows the good seed is, is, is himself, the son of man. He says the field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the wicked one, and the enemy who planted them is the devil, and so forth. And so Jesus defines these things for us, so we don't have to guess. Now, with all of that in mind, he tells these other two parables. In verse 44, Matthew 13, 44, Jesus says this. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and he sold all that he had and he bought it. Now, interestingly, when we teach this parable to the children in Sunday school classes, and I've even heard many pastors teach this to their churches, they say that we are the man in the parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. So we're the man. We found the kingdom of heaven, which is like a treasure. Uh, we hid it. Then for joy, we sold all that we had and we bought that field. Wait a second. That doesn't sound like salvation. You can't buy your salvation. You can't go buy anything to be saved. You can't buy if the kingdom of heaven is the treasure. You can't sell all that you have and purchase salvation. It does not work that way. It's not by our own good works. It's by faith that we are saved, not of works, not of ourselves, lest any man should boast. Again, he says the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. And when he had found one pearl of great price, he went, he sold all that he had, and he bought it. And again, I've heard pastors say, that's you and me. We decided that salvation was so great and the pearl of great price was so wonderful that we just sold everything we had and we just gave Jesus everything in order to purchase our salvation. Does that sound like how we are saved? I don't think so. We can't buy our salvation. We can't work for our salvation. We can't earn our salvation. So then what does this parable mean? Who's the man? What is the treasure? And what is the field? Well, I think Jesus already told us earlier. He gave us the description of, of, of what this is. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. 
If you go back up to verse 38, just a few verses earlier, Jesus tells us what the field is. He says the field is the world. So if the field is the world, the kingdom of heaven is a treasure hidden in the field. A man found it, hid it, and for the joy over it, he went and he sold all that he had in order to buy the field, which is what? The world. In order to what? To obtain the, the treasure, to obtain the prize, to obtain the pearl of great price. Jesus is the man who sold everything. He gave his own life. He gave his own blood in order to what? Purchase this world for the treasure that it contained. Jesus bought back the world. He took, takes the scroll in the book of Revelation as he receives his kingdom, the title deed to planet Earth. He purchases the planet back with his own blood. And he comes and he takes possession of his kingdom. For what reason? For his bride, the treasure, the pearl of great price, which is actually you and me. We're the treasure. Jesus is the man. He sold all that he had in order to purchase this world. Not because he wanted this crummy planet. He could create another one. He purchased this world to obtain the prize, the treasure, the pearl of great price, his bride, the church, you and me. In Hebrews and chapter 12, we read this about the joy that Jesus had, the joy that was set before him. Hebrews Chapter 12 and verse 1 and 2, and this is where we finish. Therefore, Hebrews 12, 1, 12 verse 1, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross for you and for me in order to purchase us back to God by his blood, his life poured out on the cross of Calvary. Jesus looked through the shame and the pain of the cross, and he looked through that to the future joy, where he would sit down at the right hand of the throne of God, and that he would come and take possession of this planet in order to obtain the prize, the treasure, his bride, the church, you and me. And as his bride, as his people, what is our command? What is our charge? He says, we are to lay aside every weight, verse 1, and the sin which so easily ensnares us so that we might run with endurance the race that is set before us. Guys, this is really what identifies you as a Christian is you don't do your own thing anymore. You seek to please God. Your life is not your own anymore. You don't belong to yourself. You were bought with a price. And so Christians should be living for Christ. We should be those seeking to live for God, seeking to obey him, uh, that is really the evidence of our faith. That's what the world sees. That's why it's such a contradiction when people call themselves Christians and then they live after the world, the flesh and the devil. It's such a contradiction. People think, well, if that's Christianity, what's the difference, right? 
I mean, if you're going to go get drunk and get stoned and go out fornicating and do all the things that everyone else is doing, but you go to church on Sunday so you think you're a Christian, what's the difference between you and someone else who goes to the bars and fornicates and gets stoned and does all the things, but they don't go to church on Sunday mornings? You see, it's a contradiction for the world. They think that Christians should actually be those who are representing Christ. Jesus says that we are to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow me, Jesus says. And so I think as we get closer and closer to the return of Christ, closer to uh, becoming Antichrist, and all of the prophecies that we've been talking about here and studying for the past many months, actually, uh, as we see that these things are happening, we should really be focused on heaven. We should be focused on the joy that is set before us as well, which is heaven, not, not the joys of this world. There are many joys in this world, many wonderful things God does for us in this world, but this is not our home. We're just sojourners. We're just passing through this world. The real home is heaven, and that's where we should be focused. Not my will, but thy will be done. Shall we pray? Jesus, we thank you so much for your sacrifice for our sins. Lord, we, we, we will never really appreciate or understand what it cost you until we see you face to face. But thank you, Jesus, for your willingness to come to this planet to live a perfect life, a sinless life, the only one who ever came and always did the will of the Father. Thank you for taking our sins upon yourself and dying for our sins on the cross. Thank you for paying the price that we could never pay, Lord. Thank you for the free gift of salvation. You say whosoever will can call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. And we thank you, Lord, that you died for the sins of the whole world. Lord, you loved us so much. Help us, Father, to be those who continue to seek to put you first, Lord. Help us to be salt and light. Help us, Lord God, to be those who are joyful, that we rejoice in the Lord, maybe not rejoice in our circumstances or even in the condition of our nation, Lord, but we could rejoice in the Lord, for you are good, Lord, and you always do everything well. Help us, Father, we pray. Bless your people, Lord. Help us to fully surrender to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We all want to thank you for listening. If this message has blessed you, as we all pray that it has, send the link to this podcast to your friends. Working together, we can get Michael's teaching of the whole of God's inerrant word to all those who hunger to hear it. If you would like to see this ministry expand to reach even more of the broken and lost, if you have questions, comments, and prayer requests, Email us at C-O-A-H podcast at gmail.com. We would be honored to pray for you, as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church to Hatchapi, California.